Well, welcome to part five of a series of messages. Working through the New Testament book of Hebrews. Today we pick it up in verse nine of chapter two. And let's think about where we've been so far in this series. You might remember that the writer of Hebrews begins with the divine identity of Christ. He makes careful defense for the superiority of Jesus over all created beings, included the angels. In essence, the first chapter of Hebrews is telling us that Jesus is God in the flesh. Building on that foundation, the inspired author begins to tell us about the good news, which essentially is that through Jesus, salvation is available. This brings us to today, at which point in the text, the author chooses to digress, in a sense, by spending some time on the humanity of Christ. And so, after a chapter and a half, if all we had of the Bible were this much of the book of Hebrews, we would at least be able to understand just why Jesus needed to be both God and man in order to save us. Let's pick up our text in verse 9 of chapter 2. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him for whom are all things and through whom are all things in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation I will sing your praise, and again I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had the power of death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendants of Abraham." Therefore, he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Aren't you thankful for the Word of God this morning and all that it means? Take note that this is mostly an explanatory passage, which means that God obviously thought it was important for us to fully understand the human side of Jesus. Within these verses, we're given five important reasons that Jesus Christ needed to become a human being. First of all, Christ became a man so he could suffer death. This truth comes from verses 9 and 10. Let's read them again and focus on them for a moment. But we do see him who was made for a little while lower than the angels, namely Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things, and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. From these verses... 
we get an idea of the extreme highs and lows of being Jesus. Can you imagine? Remember that just a few verses back, a lengthy case is made that Christ is superior to the angels, which was really just another way for the author to say that Jesus was God. And if you can recall, there were five ways that the writer of Hebrews showed us that Christ was fully God, always fully God. But now we're being told that this same Christ was voluntarily downgraded, demoted for a little while, if you will, and placed on the level of the rest of mankind that is lower than the angels. What? (laughs) Yes, and this by itself is mind-blowing, and it should indeed blow our minds. Christ, who was always God and who was still God, was nonetheless, even as God, made human, which also meant that He would be lower than the angels for a while. God lower than the angels. Scandalous. We also know that after the resurrection, Jesus was glorified and returned to His former position far above the angels, or perhaps even beyond His former position somehow, if that's possible. What is clear is that Jesus was perfected, as it says, which means that He was restored to His previous place and position in heaven. And again, it would also seem that He was elevated in some way even beyond the previous. What do I mean by saying that when Jesus went back up, in some sense, He was actually elevated even higher than before? Well, it's hard to understand because He was always God, right? But as Philippians chapter 2 puts it, after lowering Himself to be His servant, one who even died a criminal's death, The resurrected Christ was exalted by God above every other being, just as He had been before. But now, with the added fact that He had been given the name that is above every other name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee under, above, and on the earth should bow. That's Philippians chapter 2, which runs parallel to our text today. You can look there for your homework both there in Philippians 2 and here in Hebrews, you can see it running through the passage, we see something happening with Jesus that seems like He became even more after He had become less, or that He ascended even higher after He descended to earth. I think part of our understanding on this comes in realizing that the post-resurrection exaltation of Jesus came because of what He had done not just because of who He always was. Additionally, keep in mind that Christ was not known as Jesus before His time on earth, and so now He is this person who had a human identity with a human name, and that by that name He was known within our history, and that even as this historical person, He would also be worshiped as God, which was new. Before, He had been worshipped as God, but before, He had not also been the human being who died for all on top of it. So, understand that before His human birth, Christ was up in heaven as companion and Lord over the angels, if you can recall from last week. And even as God, if you can recall from the week before. But then, He was voluntarily demoted in order to come down to earth as a man, at which point, He went even further down to the point of death, 
But then this same Jesus was raised up again through the resurrection. This is hard to keep track of. After which, he went up even further, ascending to his rightful position at the right hand of God the Father until the eventual consummation of his kingdom in the new heaven and earth, when for the first time since the fall of angels and men, every last knee will bow to him and him alone. And you thought your life was full of peaks and valleys. Why did Jesus need to go through all of these ups and downs? Why was he required to lower himself to the level of humanity in the first place? The answer is simple, so that he could die. Jesus became a man so that he could die. He had to become mortal. He had to have blood in his veins so that he could bleed. Jesus had to become a human so that he could die in the place of humans. Remember even once more that Christ has always been co-eternal with God. I would not think that the pre-flesh immortal Christ had blood to bleed. Whatever the case, he did not have an earthly body made from dust and returning to dust like us. No, Christ in heaven simply did not have the ability to die. That's part of why he had to become a man, so that he could suffer and bleed and die. But why did he need to suffer and bleed and die? Because God in his justice had declared that the penalty of sin would be death. He had even established throughout history that forgiveness of sin only comes through the shedding of blood. A truth we will revisit in chapter 9 of Hebrews. The point being that God being God simply set death by bloodshed as the required payment or sentence for sin. And take note that there is no one who can challenge God on this requirement because He is the ultimate judge of the universe. He's God. The sacrificial system of Judaism was designed by God for the express purpose of demonstrating this truth to the world. This is also why the sacrificial system has been preserved in God's Word for us to read about and understand. The sacrificial system wherein animals would be killed and wherein their blood would be shed was designed to teach people that death by bloodshed is the price of sin and that God is moved to forgive only when one being's blood is shed in order to atone for the sin of another. Before Christ, they were told to do this with animals and especially with lambs, perhaps because lambs seem so innocent and were possibly the hardest animal on earth to kill. It felt so wrong. Exactly. Personally, I'm not sure I could kill a lamb. I just don't think I could do it. It certainly wouldn't, I certainly wouldn't want to. I guess I would never have been able to serve as a priest in the Old Testament. At the least, I would have needed a very good reason to kill a lamb. Maybe if it somehow saved a real person from God's judgment or something of that nature. Even though I am a hunter, which means I do indeed kill things to eat them, if you didn't know what that meant. Um, I just don't know if I could kill a lamb. Some of you men think I'm a softie now, but I'd rather have 
the women liking me anyway. <laughs> and the fact is that death of any kind is never, it just never has seemed right, has it? Have you noticed this? Death is the highest price that can be paid. The life is in the blood, the Bible says, and when blood is shed, life is given. Death is the highest price that can be paid. See, God ordained the sacrificial system because He wanted the cost of sin to be experienced. He wanted the people to see that the ugliness of their own sin meant shed blood and death, even the death of something as innocent as a lamb. And yet, even while the sacrificial system was in place, they were not to think of it as the ultimate solution. God had promised that one day Messiah would come to be the once and for all sacrifice for sin. In fact, the Messiah, the Christ, would be called the spotless, sinless Lamb of God. And His shed blood would completely satisfy God's justice forever. This forgiveness would be applied to those who would receive God's unfathomable grace gift by faith. Some of the holier-than-thou religious leaders of Jesus' day did not interpret the Messianic prophecies this way, but it was all right there in the Scripture. And even early in the story of Jesus, some of the people understood perfectly why He had come. People like Simeon, who prophetically warned Mary and Joseph that Jesus would be sacrificed for many. John the Baptist understood, declaring that Jesus was the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world, but the majority of the religious leaders at the time had decided Messiah would be their political savior, the one who would lead the people to earthly glory, even though Scripture was clear that His purpose would actually be to give His life as a sacrifice. Verse 9 of our text says, so that by the grace of God, Christ might taste death for everyone. Wait. For everyone? For everyone? The whole world? That's right. Christ died for everyone, although not everyone would wind up receiving His gift by faith. This idea that Christ died for everyone is at the heart of the gospel, which is good news for the entire world. But right now, we need to understand one thing. In order for Jesus to taste death for us, He had to first become a man. Look at verse 10. For it was fitting for him, God, for whom are all things and through whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory, us, to perfect the author of our salvation, Christ, through sufferings. So in order for God to bring us to glory, or to allow us to become like Him and be admitted into heaven someday, Jesus had to suffer and die. But again, before He could suffer and die, He had to become a man. This is what it means to say that Jesus was perfected through suffering and death. The writer here is not intending to say that Jesus was somehow imperfect before this, in the way that we think of it, but instead that His work could not be perfectly completed until A, He became a man, B, He suffered, and C, He died. These things perfected, that is to say, they made complete the work of Christ. Jesus had to become a man capable of enduring suffering and death in order to become a perfect, unlike the lambs, they were imperfect, in order to become a perfect sacrifice. 
And that could have been an entire sermon, but I don't want you to feel cheated when you come to church, so I have four more points. Number two, Christ became a man so we could become his brother. From verse 11, for both he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified are all from one Father, for which reason he's not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will proclaim your name to my brethren. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I am the children whom God has given me. As we've already seen in this series, the writer of Hebrews often quotes Old Testament passages to support his case. Here he quotes one from the Psalms, one verse from the Psalms, and two from Isaiah. By the way, that's why these verses appear in all caps in your Bible. These are quotes from the Old Testament. We must remember that the original audience of Hebrews were mostly believing Jews. These were Hebrews who had accepted Christ. And so they understood Old Testament Scripture to be words straight from the mouth of God. The writer of Hebrews is making the point that even in the Old Testament, there was this looking forward to a Messiah who would come to be a brother to the people, this, thus giving them the opportunity to become children of God, the Father. This plan had been prophesied centuries before to the point that God's people were already counting on it, and to the degree that they had faith in this Christ to come, I believe it was also true for them. They were counted as children of God by faith in the Messiah to come. The writer is saying that regardless of whether we're talking about those who were looking forward or us who look back, The fact is that when the time came, Christ fulfilled the promise that even sinful human beings could become part of the family of God. Here again, though, we see the importance of the humanity of Christ. Jesus could not have become our brother had He not first become a man. We're not able to be brothers and sisters with angels or with any heavenly being, and certainly We would not be able to become brothers and sisters with this one who was with God and was God from the beginning unless, unless he would first become a man and offer brotherhood to us. That is exactly what Jesus did. Again, verse 11 says, for both he who sanctifies Christ and those who are sanctified, us, are all from one Father, God, for which reason he, Christ, is not ashamed to call them brethren. This is an amazing truth. We take so much for granted, don't we? We have been sanctified, that is, we have been made holy in God's sight so that we can enter into an intimate family relationship with God. You and I are being offered brotherhood with Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In order to grasp the profound nature of this truth, some of us might need to go back to part one and two of this series where we establish the deity and superiority of Christ over every other being in the universe. How can we now be His brethren? How can it be? Are we not but grasshoppers? I did not read verses 5 through 8 this morning because I mentioned those verses earlier in the series, but I will tell you briefly that in those verses, the author reminds us that humans are, for now, lower than the angels. The writer wanted to set up a discussion of the humanity of Christ by describing the humble position of humanity because he wanted us to understand just exactly what Jesus has sacrificed for us. He came down more than one notch. He came down more than one notch to get to our level, folks. 
But here's the best part. By coming down to our level, Jesus made a way for us to be brought up to His. See, to become a brother or sister of Jesus really is to rise straight to the top. And that is exactly where we are headed. We will be exalted with Christ at the resurrection, and we will reign with Him through eternity, even over the angels, as the Bible also makes clear. See, Jesus came down, not to stay down, but to bring us up. And how does He bring us up? Through sanctification. Look back at verse 11 again. For both He who sanctifies Christ and those who are sanctified, us, are all from one Father, God, for which reason He, Christ, is not ashamed to call them brethren. For what reason? Because we're sanctified in Him. So hopefully you can see that without sanctification, there's no brotherhood. Without sanctification, we have no Father in God. This is not the time to split hairs over words like justification, sanctification, glorification, words we use to try to explain some concepts, but rather we simply need to understand that in this context, the idea is that we have been made holy in God's eyes through Christ. What many need to understand here is that until you are sanctified, Christ is not your bro and God is not your daddy. Okay? Abba, daddy, father. Do you get that? You must be sanctified for this to be true of you. Okay, this is extremely clear throughout the New Testament. We do not start off in God's family, folks. The whole we're all God's children thing, not quite right. Now, while we are all God's creatures made in His image, and while He loves all of us and wants everyone to come to Him, the only way to become part of God's family is through the sanctification of Christ. So you say, well, when and how does that happen? That's another whole sermon. But the bottom line is that it happens when you put your faith in Christ and His cross. Through faith, we are sanctified, which in this context is really just another word for salvation. The fact that this sanctification or salvation is available through Christ is the irreducible minimum of the good news we call the gospel. But what brings some people into the family of God? What keeps other people outside the family? What is the key that unlocks the door? We must choose to receive what God offers by faith. That said, don't forget that which is so clear in our text, that Christ is the one who actually does the sanctifying. Only Jesus saves. All we can do is receive what He wants to do by putting our trust in Him. The really, really great news is that because Christ chose to become human, He can now also become our brother, and that even as He becomes our brother, God becomes our Father, a good Father, a perfect Father. There could never be enough songs or poetry or literature or artwork to adequately express the power of that truth alone. Jesus Christ can become your brother if you will only surrender to the sanctifying, saving work that He wants to do in your life. Thirdly, Christ became a man so He could free us from the power and fear of death. From verse 14, Therefore, since the children share in flesh and blood, He Himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death He might render powerless Him who had the power of death, that is, the devil and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. 
For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. Not only did Jesus become a man so that he could die, and not only so that he could be our brother, but also so that he could free us from the power and the fear of death. So first of all, how are we freed from the power of death? Understand that even though the cross, even through the cross alone, Jesus Christ split the spiritual world wide open. There had been a certain power that Satan held over people through death ever since the fall of man. His was always the power of death. But according to God's word, that power over us, Satan no longer has. When God in the flesh died on the cross, it was, <laughs> it was a game changer in the spiritual realm, which remember is bigger and more important than we understand. The simple fact is that the death of Jesus Christ canceled the primary power of Satan, which was the power of death. But that probably leaves some of you thinking, yeah, but what does that really mean? Well, I think that in this spot, we're talking mostly about spiritual death. The idea that our spirits are dead in sin until we come to Christ at which time we become spiritually alive. The fact is that the spiritually dead are still today under the power of Satan. And so this was not a universal victory on the cross, but it is certainly an available victory because in Christ we can now be made alive. See, those who become spiritually alive through faith in Christ and His death on the cross are no longer under Satan's power because we are no longer spiritually dead. Practically, What this means is that as a believer, you cannot say, the devil made me do it. So you're no longer under his power. The work of Christ on the cross broke the power of Satan for all who believe. You need to understand this, fellow believer, that the power of Satan is broken for you. In some churches, I might have got a hallelujah right there or something. It's broken. His power is broken because it was crucified with Christ on the cross. C.S. Lewis tries to capture this idea in his classic children's novel, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Sometimes fiction can communicate fact at a deeper level. Most of you probably know that Aslan, the lion, is the archetype of Christ in the books. And in the story, Aslan gives his life on behalf of one of the sons of Adam, Edmund, who had become beholden to the witch, the evil character in the story. Aslan explains at one point that there is something the witch does not comprehend. He tells the children that there is a deeper magic, something that rides underneath the the seen world, something more ancient, something more important, something more powerful, something deeper than physical beings can even understand. Aslan speaks of the spiritual dimension, and he knows that in that dimension, his death will conquer the power of death over others. Maybe it goes something like this. When the giver of all life dies, the very nature of death becomes life. Somebody wants to write that down and check later and make sure that I didn't just say, I don't know, heresy or something. When the giver of all life dies, the very nature of death becomes life. 
Is that not exactly what we have been told? Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live, will live even after he dies, John eleven twenty five. 25. In a sense, only when the believer dies will he fully know life, even eternal life in a place where death will no longer exist. It is difficult not to bring the resurrection into this discussion. But take note that in our text, neither Christ's resurrection nor our own future resurrection is mentioned. It would seem that simply by the death of Christ, the devil was rendered powerless over us because, you see, his power had been death. Again, when the giver of life dies, the nature of death becomes life. God has said this becomes experientially true for all who believe. We are now living temporary lives almost like seeds that need to die in the soil. Remember when Jesus talked about that? In order to spring forth with new life. Indeed, death is swallowed up in victory by the new life we will receive upon death. Notice also that verse 15 of our text says we're freed not only from the power of death, but also from the fear of death. This part is simple. When death has no power over you, there, there's, there's nothing to fear. If death only ushers in eternal life, it is no longer something to fear, but in some ways, it is even something to long for. Didn't Paul say, in some ways, I'd rather go on and be at home with the Lord, but I'll stay because I'm needed here? We've got to trust God's timing, but... Friends, I don't think Christians realize how much our outlook on death and dying sets us apart. Other religions, there's, there's a catch, you know, if you're good enough, stuff like that. True believers in Christ are freed from the power and the fear of death. Now, I'm not saying that believers never have any fear of death or that we don't fear going through the physical process of dying in as much as our faith is not perfect. But as Christians, death does not hold us captive and our thoughts of death are always influenced heavily by our belief that we are promised eternal life. We believe God has promised heaven after we die. Therefore, in as much as our faith is strong, we do not fear death, but in a certain kind of way, we even look forward to it. Some days more than others. Amen? I doubt any of us realize how much this outlook impacts us. Because if you haven't noticed, death keeps on happening. People die. The older you get, the more you realize this. Could not begin to count how many funerals I've done through the years. So let me just go on record as prophetically saying, we are all going to die. <laughs> the end is near. But the thing is, because of Christ and his death on the cross, to that I can say, bring it on. I'm ready when you're ready, God. We need not fear death because it has no power over us. But what if Jesus had never come as a human being? What if he had not died to pay the price for our sin? Well, folks, that would mean Satan's power over death would not have been broken. And we would have every reason to continue to be terrified of it. More terrified than we can possibly imagine. I can't imagine facing death without Christ. I would definitely live in fear of dying if he had never come. As it is, though, he did come 
And he broke the power of death over me, which in turn allows me to live in freedom from the ultimate of all fears. Now, again, I'm not saying we don't all have weaker moments when we don't want to die. And of course, we mourn when we lose loved ones. But the fact is that as believers, the power of death over us is broken. And any fear of death we experience is unnecessary. Now, quickly, also look back at verse 16, which says, For assuredly, he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the descendant of Abraham. In the context of a discussion about death, it is comforting to know that Jesus lives to help us, not the angels. Sorry, angels. Jesus became one of us for a while, so he's kind of all about us now. He's about helping us, which is pretty amazing in and of itself. But you might say, well, I'm not a descendant of Abraham as far as I know. This is important to understand. Later in the book of Hebrews and several other places in the New Testament, it is explained that those with faith in Christ proved to be spiritual descendants, the true children of Abraham. Abraham knew God by faith just the same as us. The phrase descendants of Abraham is used here to refer to all those who come to God by faith in his Messiah, Jesus Christ. I'm sure the author also knew that this phraseology would play well with his original audience, these first century Jews who had believed in Christ. But we should all keep in mind that ultimately in the New Testament, the phrase descendants of Abraham is always a reference to people of faith in God's Messiah. But in spite of my previous attempt at humor about it, you might sincerely ask why the author would choose to say he does not give help to angels. Simple. We're talking about help with death. And see, angels don't need any help with death because they are immortal. The curse of sin which brought death to humanity did not bring death to angels. They don't need help from Jesus with death. But we sure do, don't we? In fact, is there anything we need help with more than death? No, death has been our biggest problem, and Jesus solved it for us on the cross. So again, Christ became a man to free us from the power and the fear of death. But if he had not become a man, we would not have this freedom. Fourth, Christ became a man so he could understand us. Verse 17 says, Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. That last line harkens back to what we just talked about, that in Christ's death, we find freedom for our own death. Why or how does his death free us from the power and fear of death? Here's the answer. Because Christ was the propitiation that is basically the substitute, or better, the atonement for our sins. Jesus is our sacrificial lamb. He was killed on our behalf. He was killed in our stead. He was killed to serve our death sentence, which he had earned by our sin. We had earned by our sin. This is what it means that he made propitiation for our sins. But now let's focus on what I have underlined in verse 17. This says that one of the reasons Jesus had to be made human like us is so that he could become a merciful and faithful high priest. We will find out soon in Hebrews that in some ways Jesus has always been a priest for mankind, the mediator between God and man, and yet apparently he could not be this particularly merciful high priest unless he was first made human, as it says, made like us who become his brethren. We'll be talking about the priesthood of Christ for the next two weeks, and so 
I'm going to be very brief on this, but at least on one level, the heart of this verse is simply that Jesus was made like us so that He could be understanding. Christ became a man so that He could experience the weakness of being human and therefore be merciful to us in our own weaknesses, even as He goes to the Father as a priestly advocate on our behalf. Later in Hebrews it says, for we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And so we see that Scripture teaches this mystery that God somehow gains special insight into our condition by becoming a man and living on the earth. Because Jesus became a man, He can now completely understand us on every level, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, and physically. Jesus can empathize even with our physical pain. He knows our joy. He understands our weakness. He even shared in our struggles, particularly our struggle and our battle with sin. That takes us right into the fifth reason for the humanity of Christ. Christ became a man so He could help us overcome temptation. Verse 18, for since He Himself was tempted and that which He suffered, He is able to come to the aid of those who are tempted. Here's very important to understand that it is not a sin to be tempted, nor is it a sin to struggle with temptation. We cannot always keep from being tempted, though we should keep ourselves out of tempting situations as much as possible. Some of you need to go back to a flip phone. I'll just leave it. I'm just going to drop that right there. But to live as a man or woman in this world is to face temptation. Jesus knows this. In fact, the Bible specifically says that Jesus endured temptation. We also know that Jesus overcame temptation over and over again, and He overcame it every single time He faced it. This is why Jesus is so specially qualified to come to our aid when we are tempted. Again, also in Hebrews, later in chapter 4, verse 15, the Bible says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness. Read that a minute ago, but this part. But one who has been tempted... In all things, as we are, yet without sin. How's that for an example? How's that for a role model? Who else can this be said of? Not your pastor, that's for sure. And of course, this cannot be said of anyone but Christ. And doesn't it also mean something to know that someone actually won every single battle? Someone made it through all of the temptations of life flawless. See, we do actually have a role model. We do have an example. We absolutely have someone to follow. We just need to be very careful to remember exactly who that person is. It's Jesus and none other. Today's text says not only that Christ has overcome temptation perfectly, but also that He's all about coming to our aid when we are tempted. How awesome is that? Think about who we're talking about here. Jesus comes to help us when we are tempted. Who does? Jesus does. The one who knows what it's like comes to our aid. Listen, Jesus wants to help you when you're being tempted. And He does so. He shows up and offers help. But the question may be, how often do you shush Him away? And yet the Bible is telling us that this is one of the very reasons that God chose to become a man. 
so that he could help you overcome temptation. 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says, No temptation has seized you except what is common to man. And God is faithful. He'll not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can stand up under it. Now, there's a whole sermon right there. But if you link that verse with today's text, which says Jesus is the one who comes to the aid of those being tempted, what do you get? You get Jesus. You get the one who's been through temptation when you're tempted. You get the God who became a man so that he could face temptation so that he could help you with yours. <laughs> so what should you do the next time you face temptation? Well, for one thing, recognize the presence of Jesus because he just showed up to help you. When temptation shows up, so does Jesus. How about that? The tempter or his minions are there too. But does that matter so much when you know that the one who beat them all at their own game is there to help you? So here's what to do the next time you face temptation. Acknowledge the presence of Jesus and acknowledge his help. How? Well, I'd suggest you just start talking to him in that moment. It's called prayer. You might want to try that. Talk to Jesus. Say, Jesus, thanks for showing up right now because I need you. And um, how would you suggest we approach this temptation in front of me? And then just keep on talking to him as you follow him right off the exit ramp. Now, I'm giving you this instruction, but does that mean I always do what I'm telling you to do? <laughs> Sadly, no. I hate to say it, but plenty of times I shun the aid of Jesus. It's pathetic when you think about it, isn't it? Here's Jesus, the God of the universe, trying to throw me a rope, trying to coach me through, saying, don't do this, Mark. You don't have to do this. You can overcome. I'm here. I'll help. And sometimes I ignore the very presence of God and just do it anyway. Sickening, but true. On the other hand, where would I be in life today if I didn't often let Jesus help me through? I can tell you, I would be in the pit. That's where Have you ever noticed how gentle God is? He doesn't scream into our ears something like, if you do this, I'm going to smite you with a smiting that you will never recover from. No. It's more like, please don't do this. You're only hurting yourself. You can turn away from this. Let me help. That's the voice of the Holy Spirit, who's also the Spirit of Christ, by the way. And so this merciful voice that is wanting to help really is the voice of Jesus. Why is he so gentle? Why is he so merciful? Because he's been there. He understands. And he knows the truth, which is that by his power within us, we can overcome temptation just as he did. He also knows that our lives will be so much better when we do. Christ became a man so he could help us overcome temptation. I don't know about you, but this text that we've covered today helps me to be more thankful for the humanity of Christ. Amen? 
This helps me to want to take advantage of what he did for me. Not to squander it, but to receive the help he offers. Jesus Christ became a man so that he could destroy the power of death by dying. He became a man to be my brother. He became a man to understand me. And he does understand whatever I'm going through. Jesus stands ready to help me overcome temptation so that I can become more like him. Aren't you thankful Jesus came down? That he became a man? That he cared enough to become one of us? I've mentioned it already, but he's now been glorified. And when he's with us, it's in the presence of the Holy Spirit. But that's not the end of the story, is it? Is it? Y'all know what's coming, right? Him. He's coming. Are you ready? Is he your friend? What did I say earlier? You've got to be sanctified. You've got to be saved. He does the work. I personally believe there's plenty of Scripture that tells me that he wants to do the work. But you've got to let him. You've got to receive the gift by faith. I want to give you an opportunity to do that. Would you pray with me? Just tell him if you're ready. I don't know who you are. I don't know what God's been doing in your life, what's got you to this point. But it's today the day. I just want to tell God, yeah, sanctify me, save me. I need Jesus. I need what he did on the cross to be applied to me. I don't feel forgiven. I don't know. I'm not so sure I am forgiven. So come into my life and forgive me. Apply the blood to me. Let the Lamb of God, his sacrifice be applied to me. You don't have to use those words. Just say yes to God and his Holy Spirit. Yes to being saved. Yes to being sanctified. Yes to being covered receiving the gift of grace that Christ gave you by dying for you in your place. He served your sentence. He's offering forgiveness to you and eternal life. You've got to believe He's there and believe He's real, and you've got to say yes. Is there anyone today that would do that? I hope so. We all have a testimony of that moment, those of us who are believers. Maybe it's that moment for you today. So I hope you'll let me know. It could be as simple as putting it on your communication card. Or you can tell the folks in the back during the song. Either way, Jesus, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for your saving grace. In your name, amen. Thanks for listening to Go Church's weekly sermon podcast. If you enjoyed the sermon, be sure to rate and review us. If you want to learn more about the ministry of Go Church or catch up on previous sermons, check out our website, www gochurchpnw.com. You can also connect with Go Church on Facebook and Instagram.